So Lisa, last episode, we started our conversation about words uh, and how language really matters and some language that we probably want to either remove or change in our little lexicon here. Um, And they're words that we probably did not know the origins of the words. And so um, we had so many words that we didn't get to last time that I think we should really pick up where we left off because there's some learning that I have to do and some unlearning I have to do. So I think it's a good idea to try to finish up our rough list here, but also too, you know, I was stuck thinking of suggestions. Like I needed to pull out a thesaurus to figure out what in the world do I say instead of that. So I thought there might be some other listeners that had some a similar feeling as they're listening to our list here. Yeah. And I just think that this is not an exhaustive list, right? Because we could probably do like 19 episodes on this. Um, so <laughs> sure. we'll, we'll focus on the common ones that we didn't get to. And then offer those suggestions, like you say, because I think it's the um, let's name the problem, but then also offer a solution. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. I may be the first, but I know I won't be the last. Create a little club, do something. Just do something that's, if it's not there already, create it. Be the leader. If you can knock down that barrier and be the first, it makes it a lot easier for other people to come through without having to go through a lot of those things. Is women supporting women? So we not only have to support each other, but we have to decide that we're going to choose solidarity and act on it. The Outspoken Women in Endurance Sports Summit brings women together to build connections, increase and sustain women's leadership in the industry, and drive forward equity and inclusion. In the past, we focused on women in triathlon, but this year, we are expanding our scope and including all endurance sports with a key focus on business. Learn strategies to help you grow your own business, ways to build your influence and career in the endurance industry, and leave with a network of other women committed to helping you succeed. Join us at the Outspoken Summit from November 11th to November 13th in Tempe, Arizona. Visit OutspokenSummit.com or click the link in the show notes for more information and get your ticket today. That's OutspokenSummit.com. The Outspoken Summit. Build your brand, grow your influence, drive your impact. Age is just a number, but your health is a science. People age at different speeds, some faster, some slower. That means the date that marks your birthday may not represent your body's actual biological age. That's why Inside Tracker developed InnerAge 2.0. This proprietary AI-driven platform reveals how your body is aging and provides a personalized, science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. We believe that your best self isn't behind you, it's within you. And by looking at the science of your health and longevity, you can discover the personalized path to living healthier and longer. So, if you want to continue doing the activities you love with the people you love for the rest of your life, it's time to turn back the clock with InnerAge 2.0. For a limited time, Feisty listeners can take 20% off your entire Inside Tracker order, including InnerAge 2.0. Just visit insidetracker.com forward slash Feisty. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility 
maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items at orca.com, use the code IRONWOMEN15. So Lisa, last time we were kind of inspired by Pete Buttigieg, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name correctly again. I'm st- I've been practicing. I've been practicing. Um, but that was kind of our inspiration to even start this list. And so I think we have a few things that we should uh, kind of pick up from where we left off in regards to language that we need to either remove entirely from our vocabularies or replace. And I was just really kind of moved by the fact that Secretary Pete, uh, Secretary of Transportation, um, mentioned the language of the wrong side of the tracks or the other side of the tracks. And and he didn't use it in his language, but he mentioned that it's problematic that that language even exists here in the United States. And so I think that's really powerful because it lends itself to so many things, whether it's redlining, blue lining, green lining, um, safety maps, quote unquote, safety maps, which were actually created to preserve the safety of white folks. All of those things that it refers to, I think it's interesting because I've been one of those people that was probably considered to live on the wrong side of the tracks because it was a very clear delineation between a white area of town and a non-white area of town in my hometown. So I really appreciate how Secretary Pete brought this up um, and how it harkens back to some of the history that we should not forget necessarily either, right? Yeah, I think it's an important piece to, um, this actually connects with our next word that we're going to talk about, urban, right? Because it's how that space itself and the infrastructure that creates certain spaces is racialized. And we don't necessarily understand it that way. We don't necessarily talk about it that way. But I mean, I think there's no place really for the phrase wrong side of the tracks or other side of the tracks. Um, You know, if you're trying to describe... Uh, the the landscape, the urban or city landscape and the planning around that. And you're trying to identify that there's been disinvestment in this particular area or overinvestment and gentrification in that area, you know, and that's your goal, then I would just encourage you to just say that, right? Like, um, rather than, you know, use this idiom, um, yes. wrong side yes. of the tracks, you know, casually, because it mm-hmm. really, it, For me, it just is, it's so glib in terms of thinking about that, all that structure, all the ways in which railroads in particular were used historically by white people to carve up cities. And then certain pockets of cities were then um, given zero resources and were, you know, brutally disinvested in, I mean, even things like, I think it was in Los Angeles where, you know, they built a highway to essentially help white people get to their jobs and it like went straight through an african-american community i don't know the history there but you Mm -hmm. know that stuff Mm -hmm. is still happening in 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 many places across the across the u.s so it's not a railroad it's a highway but it's the same principle right you're carving up a city and then you're removing resources from a particular area absolutely and you know when you think about that you know think about how Uh, government has used eminent domain for so long, you know, where let's say Shauna, the African-American that lives in a certain area, no, we don't have to respect that she's lived there her entire life, or that's a home that might've been passed down. If the government wants that space to build a highway, they can use eminent domain. And unfortunately, this is an area that's been disproportionately used to displace black and brown people. Right. It would be different if it was happening relatively equitably, but we don't have any evidence of that being equitable at all. So, you know, you're right. I think that's really important to consider that whether it's train tracks, highways, there's even been man-made bodies of water that have been created in order to separate groups. So all of that and and, uh, Secretary Pete's uh, connection to um, the landscape and transportation in this country, how interesting you think that something as so-called innocent as a road or a highway to get you from A to B would be relatively 
not problematic, but look how it's been used to the contrary. So, you know, when, when we think about equity, you know, when people say, I don't understand how equity is connected to this, we've said it episode after episode, <laughs> equity and inequity is baked into everything, everything. Yeah, it's actually a great example of like, quote unquote, structural racism, right? Because it is a structure, like physically a structure, but it's also structural in that it is like you just said, baked in, right? Like, so there's, you've got both, both readings there in the, in that piece of it. So this, okay. So this connects to urban, right? And I'm curious what you think about urban. When I think of urban, Mm -hmm. um, I understand it as essentially a euphemism um, for Black people in particular. And I think about the TV show Blackish, which is no longer on. And I cried so hard at the last episode because I love that show. Um, and I remember right at the very beginning, Dre is promoted to like senior vice president of urban marketing or urban advertising or something like that. And he was the only Black uh, employee at um, the marketing company whose name I'm forgetting. And so there was a whole thing about how urban urban basically meant black people, right? It wasn't, it didn't mean city. Um, and so Ibram uh, X. Kendi actually, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, he talks a lot about spatial racism and how that's ultimately the culmination of racial or racist, sorry, policies, and that they lead to that resource inequity that we just talked about previously with railroads and highways. And so um, spaces get racialized and then they get eliminated. And so the way that urban is utilized as a term, um, you know, has morphed over time. And it's also connected to, right, white flight. When you think about kind of white flight and the 50s and 60s to suburban America and then how money and resources got poured into suburbia and withdrawn from city, central city areas. And so then folks of color and lower income people stayed in those areas. Um, Mm. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you what do you think about the term urban? It sucks, man. And and the reason why I feel like it sucks, uh, woman, um, is that. You know, for me, the reason why urban sucks is because usually, and and maybe I'm sensitive to the language in a different way because I did not grow up in a city. I grew up in very rural areas. And what I find interesting, especially in my work uh, previously in higher ed and other spaces, is that usually it was coded language. It was urban that was used to be synonymous with black and brown people. And once you dug into the conversation a little bit further and you listen to the context within which it was used, usually urban was synonymous with non-white people who can live anywhere. And they weren't talking about geography at the time. They were talking about individual groups. And so given that, that's why urban really gets at me because, for example, I've seen grants, for example, that were written for urban students and it was written for black and brown students from all over an entire state that was mostly rural i'm like okay so then you used coded language to describe black and brown students right and so rather than use the language urban why aren't we just more specific to the groups that we're talking about if we're specifically talking about umbrella black or african-american or latinx or native american indigenous populations any non-white group that you may be speaking of, why not just name those groups rather than to use urban because that seems to be a more comfortable word because it's connected to geography when most people forget that there are plenty of black and brown people that do not live in cities and and being aware of that. So I I don't know when urban and black and brown people became synonymous, but it has never been synonymous. You know, that makes me think, I wonder if it's grown out of this discomfort of white people of actually naming racial identities. Like if I say black or African-American, oh, yeah, like, yeah, does yeah. That, that, that is in itself racist to name a racial identity. And so to sidestep that discomfort, then that's part of how urban became part of the lexicon. I wonder, I don't know if that's true. Here but we go. Here, yeah. So now you're making me think, see now, now I'm feeling like I'm back in my doc program now. So Lisa, now you're making me think that we need to name that systemic racism and white comfort are all intertwined and they are, um, what can I say? They mutually feed off of one another. Let me just put it that way. 
because oh yeah yeah everything that we've talked about thus far does lend itself to white comfort if we really think about it you know yeah, you're right certain groups living on a certain side of the tracks or the certain side of the road or a certain side of the river makes white people feel more comfortable because we've created distance or i'm using urban rather than black latinx indigenous because it makes me feel more comfortable not to refer to a particular group you know, we could go on and on with the whole white comfort thing and how that's baked in. So yeah, you're you're making me go back to my mm. doc program days where I wish I was bright mm-hmm. enough to name that then. But I, that's what I feel is going on here now. Yeah, so, no, yeah. I think that's good. I'm glad you said that. Um, mm-hmm. So what else mm-hmm. have we got? What else have we got? Yeah, now? okay. So look, we got lots of other stuff. There, there were other words that I don't think were in our previous episode that unfortunately have a very anti-Semitic tone to them, right? So for example, um, when someone mentions uh, that a person looks like they just came from a concentration camp, I mean, I almost want to vomit as I read this um, because I'm thinking to myself, no, I, I don't ever want to refer to a concentration camp unless I'm talking about history or talking about facts, but describing someone that way because they happen to be thin or they may look a little fragile, for example, just just naming someone. It, doesn't it feel like body shame? Is, is that yep. not body shame? Yeah, that's a whole lot of bad stuff going on in a phrase okay, like that. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's quite a bit of body shaming going on there. Um, so that's one phrase that has very strong anti-Semitic tone to it. Um, and then another one that I, I've i heard folks say around me before um, that I did not think about is really important too. I don't personally use it, but I've heard it many times. Jewing the price down on something, for example. Um, so instead of saying what we really meant by that, which is I negotiated the price down to what may have been more affordable for me. Um, and so given that, um, that feeds into stereotypes about Jewish people and their financial wealth or being miserly, cheap, just not wanting to pay a certain amount. And so for that, I think those undertones are really strong. And yeah, I just, I would rather not use that language and just say, hey, I negotiated, you know, I negotiated the price on that new car. I negotiated mm-hmm. the price on yeah. what have you, rather than uh, connecting with an identity group that might not have been folks intention when they said it, right? That is the origin. So yeah. Yeah. And I did not, I heard this, that phrase um, in the US. I didn't hear it in the UK. That's not to say it isn't said in the UK, right? But it wasn't something I heard. What I heard in the uh, UK more often was something like, oh, I've, you've been gypped. I've been gypped, right? Referring to gypsy people who are actually travelers, Roma people, and this idea that they are untrustworthy and fraudulent and they will steal from you. So it's not exactly the same thing, but it's, again, it's talking around money um, and trustworthiness. And so um, it's really interesting when we, when we talk about these things, Shauna, and applying this kind of global international contextual lens to it. And there's so many terms that I learned so many derogatory terms, let's put it that way, that I learned or heard, you know, coming here. And I moved here in 2003. It's not that long ago, right? In the 2000s. And these terms are still being used. Um, That's right. That's right. They're mm-hmm. new. I didn't know what they meant because I just had right. that. So it's kind of curious. And I'm sure there are other international listeners, listeners on here who can relate. Yeah, um, so another common word that you have all probably used um, is picnic. I too have used this. And um, again, this is one of the issues where this word didn't um, originate. Um, uh, so it didn't, its origins are not necessarily associated with slavery in the United States. Um, in some cases, there is a, a an origin tra- tracing back to France, to 1800s France. Um, but it is connected in the US context because when lynching occurred, there were often enormous social gatherings of white people that happened around where they shared food and they laughed and they celebrated while an African-American person was being murdered. Um, And so this kind of uh, the quote unquote lynching picnic is connected to the word picnic and along with some other more um, violent phrases that I'm not going to repeat here. And so we would yes. encourage folks to just not use the term picnic because of that history in the U.S. context in particular, but perhaps yeah. anywhere. 
And yeah, yeah. we weren't actually sure how we could replace this, right, Shauna? So we had to think about yeah. like, what would be a different way to say it. And so mm-hmm. we came up came up with a few um, a garden party. <laughs> it's, my, it's the funniest one because um, that is not probably a term I would use either. <laughs> uh, no, no, not at all. Not, well, but I, what I think is cool about what you're mentioning, though, is that, you know, we're all striving to do better by seeking out these words. So, you know, things like barbecue, cookout, clam bake, you know, that type of thing is really important because, you know, we have to think about the history of this word. You know, Lisa, you gave us a great understanding of what a picnic really meant then. I mean, these were literally social gatherings where folks would take pictures and send them to other white family members as postcards because it was celebrated as an event. And so that is just disgusting. And and we don't want to perpetuate that history that happened then where there were, you know, literally where there were pictures of, for example, you know, a white adult with their white kid taking, uh, imagine that fast forward to modern day where a white parent and their kid taking a damn selfie in front of strange fruit, like we mentioned last episode. That's disgusting. And so, you know, I I think we just need to be really careful and, and go with barbecue, cookout, something different, but definitely not the language of picnic giving its connotation to lynchings of Black people in this country. So yeah, I'll go with garden party if I have to, Lisa, but I, I got to yeah. find something else other than that word too. So, um, yeah. but Lisa, since, we, <laughs> since we're laughing about garden parties, let me tell you about another word that I was laughing about too, um, or a phrase. I have literally heard this before <laughs> where women said to other women, they need to man up or grow a pair. I'm assuming oh, growing a pair of testicles, hate right? It. I'm like, did you not hear what you just said? And so, you know, for me, I think it's hilarious that we would even use that language, especially amongst women. I don't think we should use it at all, but especially not amongst women. Um, and, you know, just thinking about the context of the statement, you know, what are you trying to say there? Usually this type of phrase or language means that you want someone to to be brave or build up their confidence around something or um, stand up for themselves or maybe stand up for someone else. Um, naming their truth, speaking their truth, um, as we would say in the DEI space, speaking truth to power to something that's important to us. And so given that, you know, man up or grow a pair, well, last time I checked, being brave, being confident, standing up for yourself, all of those things were not gender specific. Just saying. Right. right. I think we can all apply that. So I I don't see any problem with that at all. So yeah, let's uh, try to think about some different language, but I just cackle when I hear how inappropriate it sounds amongst women. I think that's hilarious. So we can't completely point fingers at the men for saying it um, to women necessarily. We do it amongst ourselves as well. I I will admit that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Perpetuating those really harmful gender stereotypes for folks of all yes right? so let's mm-hmm. not fall into that trap as as quote unquote innocent as it may seem it still sends a very strong message mm-hmm. um okay so this next one um is something that i just i learned about recently in doing research for this episode right so it's crack the whip and i have certainly heard crack the whip before in reference to someone who is you know working me hard or, you know, a supervisor, they're cracking the whip, they want to get stuff done. Um, But really, um, the connection isn't particularly difficult to make, you know, and once I had seen it, I was like, oh, that makes total sense, right? Again, kind of my whiteness, like overlooking the connotation of such a phrase. And we've got, um, there's two kind of two origins, neither are good, right? So one is, um, slave owners or their kind of designee, mm-hmm. right? The poorer mm-hmm. white folks that often worked in the fields whipping right. um the right. enslaved people to keep mm-hmm. them moving, keep them working. And then also there is an origin that's take goes back all the way back to the 1600s where settlers here in the United States would actually whip um horses. So they'd hit them over the head or with the whip to startle them into obedience. So in both cases, it's a tool of violence being used to gain submission from an enslaved person. And in the, in the other case, a horse, right? And um, so it's not a great phrase to use. And the other piece that's connected is that 
neither Shauna or I are, are clear on this and we haven't done our research, but it could be also where the term cracker comes from that is often used as a derogatory term for white people, right? Kind of hearkening right, back to ways right. in which white people have been violent against um, mm-hmm. enslaved people. So right, I think, right. you know, have you said this when you're talking about a coach, right? Mm-hmm. That is maybe working you really hard or has a pretty tough training schedule for you. And you're saying that they're cracking the whip. So mm-hmm. can, can you say something different, right? Like, yeah, you know, oh my goodness, they wrote this ridiculously intense training training schedule for me. I can't keep up mm. with it. Or, you know, mm-hmm. they're keeping me on my toes. I did look up keeping me on my toes and it looks like it comes from boxing. So ah, um, I, don't, okay. I don't think there's a suspicious or negative connotation to that one, um, but uh-huh. I will correct it if anyone knows any different. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just think mm-hmm. there's just different ways to say things rather than relying on these, um, you know, violent and, you know, kind of rooted in slavery phrases. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And, you know, as many of them as there are, that that's what I think is the biggest challenge is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm imagining Lisa, someone saying, okay, all these words, we're just scratching the surface of all the, the long list of terms that maybe should be removed from our vocabulary. I mean, what else is there left to say? I mean, I'm really going to have to concentrate on rethinking my entire vocabulary. And yes, that's what we are asking you to do. Um, plus, we're also demonstrating again how deeply embedded and rooted enslavement as an institution is, even in modern day US vernacular yep. In yep. interactions with each other in ways in which, you know, I'm I'm also hearing the naysayers saying, well, I wasn't involved with that. Well, most people who are speaking right now weren't involved in it, but we're all historically affected by it. And so therefore all of this language affects us. And so, you know, I think it's really important to tell once again, the fuller historical story um, of, of where this language is coming from. Right. Um, But Lisa, we also know too, that not everything comes from the institution of slavery in this country. We've got lots of other stuff like what I'm working on personally trying to work on this ableist language piece. So, you know, I, countless times I have used the language of, oh, well, that person is just using that as a crutch to do X, Y, Z, right? Um, So using something as an excuse not to do something or just using something as an excuse. Why didn't I just say excuse (laughs) rather than actual crutches that someone legitimately will need to use to have mobility? You know, I I could have used something different there Um, or even the language of wheelchair bound or confined to a wheelchair rather than saying this is a person. Let's restore their humanity here. This is a person who happens to use a wheelchair. How about that? Um, And so, you know, all of this, I've been kind of rethinking some of my uh, ableist language because it's everywhere as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on yeah. it. Yeah. You know, one that, com- that comes up a lot, we don't have on our list here, but I'm just going to throw in is blind spot. You and I have talked about this a lot. And I think that um, where people struggle with it is it feels uh, neutral, right? It feels like we are just describing something that is not visible, right? It is not visible to you. But it has, right. it's, right. it's a negative connotation, right? We don't use the term blind spot in a positive way, it means you've missed something or you um, are, you're, you know, your, your vision isn't wide enough or your perspective isn't wide enough. And so because it's like a negative connotation to have something missing in your vision, right? The blind spot, you're not seeing something. Therefore, I think that it's an ableist term that we should really try to stop using because it associates blindness or low vision with negativity rather than that is just a part of a human condition and we are all built differently. And some of us, and we all have different kind of layers of vision, right? Levels of vision. And that's okay. Rather than trying to say, you know, 2020 vision is great. Oh, you have a blind spot. That's bad. Right. Yes, 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 absolutely. And I mean, Lisa, I don't know about you, but I can look on my, (laughs) on my bookshelf right now. Most of my books are either, you know, DEI based or theology based or higher ed based. And I have more than one DEI focused book that is named. The title itself is blind spot. 
That's yeah. what's yeah. like so ironic to me is that, again, those of us who do this work for a living as practitioners, you know, we still miss things, right? And so I, I appreciate you bringing that up because yes, I've, I've done it more than once. Um, and folks have written even on that language, right? Um, and some of that language, like, for example, <laughs> this is one that I thought was interesting. Long time no see or no can do. <laughs> mm. I've said this phrase countless times, Lisa. Count, I, I, I yeah, can't even me count. Too. Yeah. Ugh. Especially when I see someone that, you know, I haven't seen in a long time. I'm happy to see them, that type of thing. Yeah, I've used that countless times, right? Any other ones that we really want to mention too, because there's so many, the the list keeps growing as we talk. Let's, let's just stay on the long time, no see and no can do. Like, what is the problem with that? Right? Why, Mm -hmm. why shouldn't we say that? Yeah. Well, you know, again, we're we're talking about uh, groups that have usually been either excluded or um, unfortunately um, oppressed in some way, especially as they are positioned as consistent outsiders. Right. So when you think of, for example, Asian Americans and the mimicking of their speech, for example. Right. Um even saying that, so for example, just the uh, the cadence of the language, long time no see, you know, it's not necessarily a full sentence that's saying, oh, it's been a long time since I saw you. That sounds quite different. Are we mocking individuals who are new to the United States and possibly new to United States English and how they how they speak. You know, I, I didn't even think about that, but yes, I'm sure that we have done that, um, whether it was on purpose or inadvertently. And so this forever foreigner stereotype that we're in, we're reinforcing um, when it comes to our Asian American brothers and sisters and siblings. uh, Yeah, I can, I can see how that's problematic and could be offensive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely a history I wasn't super aware of until recently. So um, another, another one that is rooted in, in the history um, of the United States, but a different, not the institution of slavery, but indeed genocide is um, the term off the reservation, right? Which is often used as a way to describe someone who's like gone rogue or they're out of control. Um, Mm -hmm. I've definitely heard this. I haven't heard it a lot, but I I definitely knew what it meant, right? Um, Culturally, Mm, I knew what it meant. But what it, the historical origins of this phrase is, you know, when um, indigenous um, people, Native Americans were um, negotiating, treaties, and I'm using like air quotes around treaties with white settlers, with um, colonizers, you know, they were pushed onto reservations, onto um, their land was stolen, and they were restricted in terms of their access. So, um, you know, even saying that they were negotiating treaties is even incorrect, right? Because it wasn't really like a mutually beneficial situation. Um, And so what would happen is if, um, Native American folks stepped off of the reservation, right, they would often be murdered for it. So this idea that you're stepping outside of what is allowed socially or culturally, i.e. we have a treaty, you stay on your reservation, you come off your reservation, and we're going to kill you. um, Like, that's what it means, right? The off the reservation. So we shouldn't be saying that someone's gone off the reservation, because there's a pretty horrific and bloody history associated with that particular phrase and that is definitely uh u.s contextually specific right so certainly not before yeah absolutely and i wasn't aware of that one either absolutely yeah so that's another important one um another one that i was thinking about too lisa because anyone who has um who has seen uh, well quite a few movies around this but um you know I think this cotton picking mind thing, like someone is out of their cotton picking mind. Um, I remember in seminary, there was a gentleman who came from uh, out of the country. I cannot remember where specifically he was from, but he used that phrase cotton picking every time before a, a, a sentence. Like he used it countless times in this public presentation that he was giving at the seminary, uh, basically, you know, referring to people as, you know, they are not right. You know, they they are just not mentally right. And so kind of that twofold mental health 
shade that's being thrown at that community and also not understanding a history of picking cotton in this country by black people. And so I was so grateful that I was, so I was one of only two black people in this particular worship service where this person was speaking. And I was so grateful. One of my um, professors who taught me systematic theology, probably one of my hardest professors ever, um, he stood up and raised his hand and said, I would like to ask you as my, as my brother in Christ, um, to provide a public apology for using the language of cotton picking, because cotton picking has a very sordid history in this Mm. country that you may not be aware of, but we are. And I'm like, Oh, first of all, I'm, I felt uncomfortable this whole time as you're mentioning that language, but I'm so grateful that there's an ally here, number one. And number two, I'm grateful that me and the other Black person didn't have to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, thank you, because I'm always saying something and I'm tired of saying something. So, yeah. How do we uh, move away from, yet again, more language that could possibly be connected to the institution of slavery here in this country. Yuck, well, yuck, yuck. You know, so some people might be like, okay, so let's let's say things like crazy or insane. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And we're then, but we're still, therefore, with we're in ableism territory, right? Because we yes, are mocking yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, a state of mind that may be considered um, unwell, right? And even thinking here as I'm talking, because we don't script this kind of how to choose my words wisely <laughs> about it. Um, and yeah. so I think he was crazy. That was crazy. Did you do that? That race was like insane. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, I hear that yes. all the time. And we really need to think about um, the ways in which um, mental health has been kind of uh, acculturated through these words and ultimately um, negatively viewed, right? And I think mm-hmm. this in no small, small part probably contributes to people's reluctance to come forward and share that they are experiencing mental health concerns because of the stigma associated with it. I'm going to get called crazy. I don't want people to think I'm crazy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and then, which which therefore kind of flies back in their own faces because as this happens they're seeking help but they also know that it may not be taken seriously and so it's like oh you're going in the complete opposite direction of where you want to go with that right so yeah well let me share with you lisa this is another one i wasn't even sure if this fit in the list but i thought it was worth mentioning given that there's been so many folks um, there's um, a gentleman that recently in the um, in the African American triathlon community um, who unfortunately died by suicide. Um, and so, for me, I'm how can I say I'm uncomfortable with people who still use language of committed suicide because it seems to is victim blame the right thing I, I don't maybe it's victim blaming the person but I just, I just don't feel comfortable with that language it's, at all it's, it's like they're taking an action and I suppose in some ways they are taking an action but it does put the onus on them like it separates it from yeah. other ways of dying right mm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. like you did you did this Right versus right, right, right. Um, kind of a, a culture or social pressures or illness, untreated illness, right? Yes, chemical kind of imbalance down a path of hopelessness. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes, yes. If there's a chemical imbalance of some sort, that type of thing. So you know that makes me very uncomfortable because I still hear that language quite a bit of this person committed suicide rather than this person died by suicide or this person is a victim of suicide because it is. Uh, or can be a mental health concern uh, or a chemical imbalance. So that to me still makes me uncomfortable um, because I feel like it is somewhat victim blaming an individual that um, may have had some physical or mental illness uh, because we don't do that with other illnesses. Right, right. You know, so and and I'm not belittling any other deaths, but, you know, think about what we've most recently been dealing with as, you know, as 
a globe, but also as a country, you know, a lot of people lost their lives due to COVID-19. We don't say people committed COVID-19. You know, we say that unfortunately they died due to COVID-19 or what have you. So given that, that, that has continued to bother me. So um, for those that hear that language, we just want to let you know that it bothers us a bit. Um, And also you'll see in the show notes that we have um, the 988 call for assistance. If you either are having some challenges in the, in that area, or if you have someone close to you, that is, Um, we never want to mention this without mentioning some uh, solutions and some help um, just in case someone might need it. Um, other language, Lisa, anything else we want to mention before we yeah, go? We've got so much. We have, and we're not getting through our list again, but I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up with um, right, right, right. The, the tipping point, because I think tipping point mm-hmm. is used a whole lot in a lot of different industries. Yes. And sport is no, um, outlier, right? Like we talk about tipping points in terms of training momentum and, um, various other stages of our racing and training. And I use Tipping Point all the time. And there is the famous book by Malcolm Gladwell called Tipping Point. And um, what we learned in researching this is that while it does have innocent origins, so like it's literally referring to, you know, the point at which something tips over, like that gravity would cause something to tip yes. over. Yes. But its use wasn't, um, you know, well, it wasn't a well-used phrase until sometime in the late 1950s, because what it ultimately described within that um, decade and that context was the point at which white residents felt that the their neighborhood had become, quote unquote, too black. And so they moved out. Ooh. So ooh, it ooh. actually mm-hmm. gained popularity in the United States in a very racialized way. Right. So um, prior to the 1950s, the tipping point as a as a as a phrase, as an idiom was not used at all. So, you know, there's it's important for us to understand that its current usage really goes back to the origin of the 1950s and racism in housing and white residents um, leaving neighborhoods that they felt were too black. So, you know, this was a rough one because. I Mm -hmm. struggled to think of a different way to describe it. And so I came up with maybe like point of transformation, that point at which things change, the moment at which things change. Um, Mm. It actually actually stumped me a little bit to find a concise replacement for tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, and when I think of the language, I think of, you know, I'd like that idea of like, this is a point of transformation, or this is a, um, I almost think of like a 90 degree angle where we're, you know, making a turn or we're making a change of some sort. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, um, that inflection point, I think is really a great way to say it. And it reminds me, um, of, (laughs) let me tell you, Lisa, this was gosh, months ago. Um, if you all like the genre of, um, period historical period as well as a little bit of I don't know if it should be considered horror or what it should be considered but I remember last summer um watching this very short series on Amazon Prime and it was called them t-h-e-m them I personally wouldn't watch it at nighttime. I might not watch it at any time but it reminds me of this tipping point piece because um it really, the whole thing talked about this suburban nightmare for Black people, where basically you've worked your entire lives as a Black family to get yourself into a nice neighborhood, a nice suburban neighborhood where you have more land, you have more house, all these things. Financially, you can afford it. And you're having to deal with being surrounded by white neighbors who still don't want you there, who do almost everything to get you out of there, to run you out of your own house that you worked hard for. And when it relates to this idea of tipping point, it only took one family to consider it a tipping point. And so for me, I'm like, oh, that's Mm -hmm. interesting to say, um, how many is too many? Because there would be some communities, especially during that time period where, you know, in the 1950s, where more than one black or brown family was too many. That's the tip of, we got enough. Yeah. We had yeah. one with their little black and brown kids. We know who they belong to, but any more than that, 
is problematic and now we got to go to security maps and redlining and all that other. So, you know, it begs the question of do we want to revisit those ideas of tipping points or do we truly want to see the integration that we claim that we do as a country? Right. right. Uh, I don't have any good answers, but look up them, y'all. It's a whole series. Um, but yeah, it, it, it spoke directly to this point of, of tipping point neighborhoods in the 50s. Yeah. All right. Well, now we've got some things to add to our, our viewing pleasure, although I'm not much of a horror person, so I don't know how quickly I, I wasn't was. either. <laughs> um, okay. So what about, um, let's wrap it up there. I think we've probably given you more than enough to think about even uh, though we didn't yes. our list again, but um, how about yeah. this week's hell yeah and hell nah? Hell yeah. Hell no. Okay, so I think our hell yeah and hell no could be kind of all wrapped up in one. Um, If you all have been paying attention for more than five minutes, you have probably heard that the incomparable goat, Serena Williams, should I use goat? I don't even know if I should use goat. I need to look at the origin of goat first. Um, But (laughs) the... The incomparable Serena Williams has just announced that she plans to retire after the U.S. Open. And so part of me is like, hell yeah. I mean, go out on a high note. Go out when you want to go out. Don't let anybody else tell you when you need to retire, you know, that type of thing. But then I'm also like, shoot. Like Serena and Venus both have been on my bucket list. I have tried to see them both multiple times. And the three times that I tried to see both of them, they were out on injuries. And so I'm like, no. Um, So given that, um, I feel like a hell yeah, hell no moment on this because I love her self-empowerment, but I also feel sad for fans um, that are not quite sure where she's going next. But Let's just read off the stats really quick, Lisa. 73 singles titles, 23 Grand Slam singles titles, 14 Grand Slam doubles titles, four Olympic gold medals, and $94 million in prize money, not including endorsements. Okay. She is uniquely positioned to change the world in whatever way she wants to. And so I appreciate how she and Venus and their family, Mr. Williams, how they all um, created a vision for black and brown people to see themselves in a sport where we had not necessarily been seen. That's not to negate all that Arthur Ashe did and so forth. But I do know that that created what we could see, you know, when you see someone do something, then it creates this whole vision in your mind that you could possibly do the very same thing. So um, I want to be to my hair after I saw Venus and Serena. Okay. So clearly um, they were impactful on many people, including me. So congratulations, Serena and your family um, on all of your accomplishments. And we know that you'll just continue to be such a beacon of leadership and women's empowerment and sports empowerment and where whatever the hell you want empowerment um so i feel like this hell yeah hell no how are you feeling about it lisa i actually love that the hell no is really kind of focused on your disappointment that you won't get to see her play (laughs) exactly exactly i mean what took me so long 20 plus years and i never got to see her yeah yeah, like the hell hell yeah for her is much, much bigger than the hell no, which is just kind of our own private Absolutely. disappointment that we didn't get our stuff together soon enough to to watch her um, her magic on the court. So um, I'm sad. I am curious to see where she takes things. She's not talked about retirement as much as she's talked about, I think, transformation or transition to something yes. different. So I, yes. you know, I'm looking forward to see what that might look like um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how she can continue her advocacy, you know, off the court, which I imagine Mm -hmm. she will do. So good things to come probably will be featured in the hell yeah segment at some point again in the future when, when we see what she's up to. Do you want to get more out of your rides this summer? Any old device can track distance, time and pace. But how about the ability to see the upcoming hills or points of interest along your route? The Hammerhead Caro 2 helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential on every ride. 
Hammerhead Karu 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. Free global maps with points of interest included like cafes or campsites mean you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. So one of the really neat things about the Hammerhead is that it sends bi-weekly software updates, and I've definitely noticed those in my emails. And so they have these new feature releases, and those are unmatched by the competition. So unlike other head units, your Karu 2 continues to evolve and improve with each ride better than the last. So this is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use promo code UNFAZED that's a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Karu 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart, and use promo code UNFAZED today. Feisty Triathlon is proudly partnered with TryHard. TryHard is the only company offering pre and post swim solutions to provide comprehensive protection for your hair and skin. Its products include swimmer's shampoo, pre and post swim conditioner, pre and post swim lotion, and more. All products are made with clean formula and are parabens free, SLS free, alcohol free, cruelty free, vegan, and non-GMO. And to boot, bottles are made with 80% recycled plastic. So why don't you swim without compromising your skin and hair? Unfazed listeners get 15% off all TryHard products by going to tryhard.co and using the code FEISTY15. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social media at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.